The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. And it's not just love relationships. That is, you know, my, my husband and, you know, like who our partners, our sexual partners. It is our families, our friendships that we develop and have, you know, trusted communications with. And it's only the privacy of those texts, emails, Zooms, physical interactions, what come into my house, right, that we develop close relationships and trust. So we, so in in some sense, what, what I'm suggesting is not that other types of privacy don't matter, they matter. But at the heart of human development, at the heart of human flourishing and a sense of belonging is intimate privacy. And that without it, we, we're almost like shells of ourselves. I'm Alan Rosenstein, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, October 31st, 2022. The effect of the digital revolution on privacy has been mixed, to say the least. And for intimate privacy, information about our health, sexual activities, and relationships, it's been a downright disaster. Corporations and governments surveil us, former sexual partners post revenge pornography online, and our virtual reality future threatens to take privacy intrusions to a whole new level. Danielle Citrin is a professor at the University of Virginia Law School, a MacArthur Fellow, and a leading law reformer on digital privacy. She's just released a new book, The Fight for Privacy, Protecting Dignity, Identity, and Love in the Digital Age. I sat down with Danielle to talk about her research and advocacy, the dangers that technology and the market pose to intimate privacy, and what we can do to fight back. It's the Lawfare Podcast, October 31st. Danielle Citrin on intimate privacy and how to preserve it in a digital age. Danielle, before we get into the details of the book, I, I want to ask because, you know, I've known you for a bunch of years and I've been reading your writing about this for a long time. What was the reception like when you first started writing about these issues? I think it's more than a decade ago versus you writing about them today in 2022. So when I first started, and I'm going to assume this issues like the question means online abuse more generally and cyber stalking. And that, of course, then leads me to my work on intimate privacy because it is a, it's definitely a shift. So I write in 2008 an article called Cyber Civil Rights, and it was about cyber mobs beset upon women, non-whites, you know, gender and sexual minorities, and like vicious, sexually demeaning, sexually threatening, you know, threats, lies, DDoS attacks, you name it, you know, privacy invasions, sometimes nude photos, but often social security numbers. And the response at the time was like two big things. One was Seriously, Danielle, this is like three cases. You're making a mountain out of a molehill. And this is law professors, right? Like as I'm describing the phenomenon, which of course then was understudied because it was beginning, right? We were seeing women targeted on websites like AutoAdmit, you know, Yale Law students and women who were writing about software programming being targeted on their blog and elsewhere. You know, the response was, this isn't a civil rights problem. This is you making like a big deal out of a couple of cases. And then the second response was, you know what? You are going to break the internet. Like the very idea that online threats, intimate privacy violations, defamatory lies could be 
within law's reach would be so disruptive to this great public sphere as to make me really the internet's biggest threat. And these are from men much taller than me. (laughs) As they say to my face, you're breaking the internet, you're First Amendment's villain, right? So I was an untenured professor. I think it was like my second year teaching and writing. (laughs) I was like, wow, this is not going to be easy. I mean, I never thought it would be easy. But so there was a lot of pushback. And um, we had a symposium at Concurring Opinions. You know, this is the era of the blogs. So there were, (laughs) sounds like for like an ancient history, but 2008, Dan Solov, Frank Brasquale, Dave Hoffman, myself, and a few others were blogging. And they had a symposium uh, about my article, Cyber Civil Rights. And the comments on the posts (laughs) were like, you know, not only abuse of me, but like, you know, we're going to bring a gun. Like, I don't know how gun conversations got into the comments, but, you know, debates about how stupid I am and lots of like from serious scholars objection to my calling it a civil rights problem. Right. Nice illustration of your thesis, though. It was kind of amazing. And the coolest thing, though, and I'm blogging with these beloved men for the most part and who were like, I really think we've got to kick so-and-so out of, you know, commenting on our blog. These were criminal defense attorneys you might have thought were actually serious people saying things like, her work is so bad, I want to come all over it and wipe the floor with it. And I remember seeing some of these comments and just being floored, like, I I had no words. And so I remember Dan and Frank and Dave emailing me and saying, like, we should kick them off. We should block them. And I said, if we do, they will cry censorship and target me much more. So we just decided, let them comment. So the comments were so long. It was as if like, it was very unusual to have comments, like 300 comments, you know, kind of like all gross. So, you know, that reception was (laughs) interesting to say the least. And then of course my inbox was like, you know, I'm going to rape you doggy style. And I remember saying to my spouse, like, is this worth this? You know, like, and saying, you know, this is the work. This is what I do. And so it is and has been, I've always had very supportive privacy colleagues. Like, you know, you know, our community is so close. And, you know, that was true of our blog, though not everyone was a privacy scholar, but it was, they were very supportive. And I had supportive colleagues at University of Maryland where I spent, you know, 16 years on the faculty. And so over time, though, the ideas became less crazy. The examples became more abundant the studies became more clear. You know, like it it was, I was not making a mountain out of a molehill. It was a mountain and the mountain was growing. And the mountain was spreading not only to fringe sites, because at the beginning it was like these little fringe weird sites where people being targeted on their own blogs, but it spread to mainstream sites. And then you saw, you know, the posting of nude photos without consent on Twitter, Facebook, right? I mean, it became normalized. And especially like hate speech towards women, misogyny was like as if coin of the realm. And and as the head of Daily Cost said to Kathy Sierra, this is a woman I wrote about in my first book, if you can't, and who faced rape threats, her social security number being doxxed and uh, doctored photographs of her with a noose beside her neck. And also a photo of her doctor that looked like there was lingerie who's like, you know, choking her. His response to her experience was that if she couldn't stand the heat, she should get out of the kitchen. And, you know, she shut down her blog and hasn't blogged since, right? This was someone who wrote about software programming as a creative exercise and was a very big, you know, person on, you know, a lot of San Francisco tech conferences and got frightened out of having a public life. So, you know, we definitely, and we have come a long way. You know, what I'm saying now isn't cuckoo so to speak. You know, it's, we, we see more and more of it. You know, today I think CDT just came out with a study showing that black female politicians around the world are, are face much more online abuse than other female politicians who take, who also, who face exponentially more abuse than men do. And the abuse being rape threats, defamation, like disinformation designed to discredit and humiliate 
Um, so the stuff I was writing about early in the day, not only is more prevalent, sadly, but also there is now empirical research to so demonstrate that it's not, I'm making a mountain out of a molehill. And yeah, there, there is a kind of, I think, almost a bittersweet character to, to sort of the, 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 the progression of your career, because in one sense, you're finally getting the recognition, right, that this work deserves. But it's because the mountain, as you've said, is just is so much worse, right? It was it was yeah. bad in 2008, right? And it's just kind of how many orders of magnitude worse. It's like we, what do they say? Unignorable. You know, you can't, like, yeah. can't say it's nonsense. Yeah. yeah. So you've written this great, this great book, and I, I want to now kind of get into the, the the core ideas of it. And, and the, the first I think, big core idea, maybe the big core idea, is the focusing not just on privacy, but specifically on intimate privacy, which is presumably a subset of privacy. So I just want to start by asking you to explain, what do you mean by intimate privacy? And why do you think it's important to focus on intimate privacy rather than the broader category of privacy? So what I mean by the concept of intimate privacy is all the ways that we manage the boundaries around intimate life. So that's information and access to our bodies, our health, our innermost thoughts. So every day, all day long, we we share exactly what we're thinking, we're searching, we're reading, we're browsing, we're texting, right? Our sexual activities, sexual orientation, gender, and our close relationships. And so the information about and access to all those features of life that we hold most sacred. And that includes sort of on and offline spaces, our writing, our communications, our searches, our travels, you know, our physical travels. And it's that subset of privacy that is foundational to who we are, to figuring out, you know, our, our authentic selves, like who we are today and who we might be tomorrow. You know, our first relationship is with ourselves is with our bodies. It's like how we come to know and to keep coming to know ourselves and our sufferings and our joys. And intimate privacy is is different from something like let's just take financial privacy for example. Right? Like yes, Alan, your bank account information is incredibly important and I want to keep it out of the hands of thieves. But but that information is not the key to love. That affordance of privacy of your banking record is not going to is not key to your figuring out kind of who you are and who you want to be it's it's revelation may lead to theft but it's not going to change how you see yourself the kind of images of yourself that you have of yourself and how others see you the social esteem can i just push you on that just just for a second because i can imagine some elements of my financial History. So, for example, right, if by looking at my credit card statement, you could find something about my health information or something about my sexual preference. Then right? it's so, intimate privacy. So but it's then intimate it's privacy. intimate okay. privacy. So it's, yeah. it's kind of a functional consideration. So it's all of those pieces of yes. information that speak to this, to this, to this core. Yes. 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 And it's and it's also not to belittle financial privacy, right? It's not to say that it's not embarrassing. Like, let's say my bank account has very little money in it. And that revelation in itself changes the way, like, I want to know it, but I don't want other people to know it. I don't want other people to have sort of demeaning, I feel bad for you, you know, right? Like, it, it, so I'm not suggesting that financial information isn't, isn't important to protect. Indeed, we do protect it. We protect it in federal law. We protect it in all sorts of ways, your bank, banking account information. And, and your social security number is incredibly important because it's the key to your bank account. But my SSN is not the key to love, right? Like the information that I share and the people I welcome into my life. So, you know, privacy isn't about me. It's about us. So the the ways in which I, sh- I you know, tell and share my stories, my old activities, my former self, my current self, you know, love develops like it's like peeling an onion right? It's only when we become reciprocally vulnerable, you know, according to social psychologists, that we can share the deeper parts of ourselves. And and it's only if we trust one another that we can love each other. And so, so this, this is, Charles Fried said it, said it best. He said, privacy is the oxygen for love. I kind of want to just stop there for a moment and just hold it, right? Because that couldn't be more right. 
And it's not just love relationships. That is, you know, my, my husband and, you know, like who are partners, our sexual partners. It is our families, our friendships that we develop and have, you know, trusted communications with. And it's only the privacy of those texts, emails, Zooms, physical interactions, what come into my house, right, that we develop close relationships and trust. So we, so in, in some sense, what, what I'm suggesting is not that other types of privacy don't matter, they matter. But at the heart of human development, at the heart of human flourishing and a sense of belonging is intimate privacy. And that without it, we, we're almost like shells of ourselves. So the, the concept of intimate privacy, and I, th- I think your book does a great job of articulating it and foregrounding it, but there are definitely echoes of this that go sort of way back into privacy scholarship, sort of all the way back to, as you discuss in, in the book, this sort of seminal, maybe kind of yes. like the most famous law review article of all time, right? That kind of ruined oh, it gosh. for ru- this law review article that ruined it for yes. the all law professors going forward. They're at the 1890. But why ruin it, right, Alan? Like, I feel like I'm building on the shoulders of giants. You know, you see it in my thanks, right? That is, you know, Anita Allen has written about gender privacy in the most meaningful of ways. Robin West, you know, like, even though she's not a privacy scholar, gender harms, right? Michelle Goodwin. I've been building on the work of, of so many. And yes, Warren and Brandeis laid, I think, a very important broader conception, a dignity-based and autonomy-based conception of privacy that left us room to fill. Unfortunately, Prosser really locks the privacy torts down with his 1960 article, Privacy and the Restatement of Torts. Well, so so let me just pause you, just, just kind of for those of our listeners who may not be familiar with these details, right? So we're talking about these 1890 Law Review article, the, the Right of Privacy by you know, Louis Brandeis, who later became, of course, a Supreme Court justice, and Sam Warren. And I, I believe the kind of background, correct me if I'm wrong, it was Warren, I think, who had a sibling that was that was gay. Yep. And so this was the time when you had kind of the paparazzi first developing, and they were really concerned about this. And so, you know, you would think in a sense, that a lot of what they were talking about in 1890, and they were received, I mean, this was a very influential article, would continue to this day. And yet there's a break in the chain somewhere such that you need to come around, right? People like you and yeah. Anita Allen and have to kind of rediscover this or re-articulate this. So can you just kind of, what what sure. happened? Like why, why didn't they solve this problem back in 1890? Right. Because, and I do think it's really important to kind of sit with the language in the article that they, that they talk about and the it's interesting because for years and years, people thought that basically Sam Warren nudged his law partner to write this article because his wife was a Mabel Bayard, a, a daughter of a U.S. senator, and that their parties were being covered by the Penny Press, when in fact, only once was their party covered by the Penny Press. And there was a lovely announcement in the New York Times of their wedding and an ambassador party, two big parties by ambassadors, but a teeny, like literally a paragraph. So that didn't motivate it, right? And it's only historians going back, um, studying the Mount Vernon Warren family to explain that Ned, Sam Warren's brother, was gay and living with his partner, John Marshall, like not the John Marshall, but John Marshall, and their friends at Oxford, like in a community of men who loved Greek art and, and naked male sculpture, you know, like he was an aesthet, like an really an artist and had a heart of Otter Street. He wrote letters. He wrote lots of letters, Ned, that 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 gave way that he was gay. And, you know, so let's go through like what it is that they're arguing in in um, the right to privacy. It's kind of a really technical article in the sense of they're like building on the basis of common law to say, hey, we've been here before, assault, battery, intellectual property. They're all a right to have one's life and decide for oneself, one's life and one's inviolate personality. But how they describe what this right to privacy is, is they say, the sexual details, I'm quoting them now, of, of people's lives should be their own. That, quote, what is whispered in the closet shall not be proclaimed from the rooftops. And they talk about how, like, they give an example of, of a husband writing a letter to his son, describing that he's not having dinner with his wife. And they say, that man should be able to decide for himself who sees their letters, that it is dignity denying, essentially, that he can't decide for himself who reads that letter, and that 
what the penny press and snap cameras have done and that is the you know reporters using snap cameras to take pictures of people walking down the street and peering into homes um, has belittled and perverted society that that the focus on exposing the details of people's personal lives of the domestic life as they called it was making us kind of a dumber society a society that wasn't focused on the right things that was perverting us right so it was both individually harmful, the denying the person the right to control how much of domestic life is known to other people. And it's also was bad for society. So they did, they laid down, as you said, really well, Alan, like they laid down a marker, right? Now, courts in the early 1900s, I think the first Supreme Court, it's Supreme Court of Georgia, recognizes the privacy toward in very capacious, dignity-based ways. And the case was like, the use of a man's image on an advertisement for life insurance, right? But the Supreme Court of Georgia, like it's very soaring language and said this right to privacy is is instrumental to the building and development of one's life. And to take your image without your permission is a tantamount to an enslavement. I mean, that's the language of the Georgia Supreme Court. At the same time, of course, New York courts kind of reject the tort and say, you know what, if you want to have a tour, go get the legislature figured out. And they did. They found a civil right to privacy and the appropriation of your image, right? So, hey, <laughs> that laid down very early on for me, right, to seize upon. But you're right that over time, courts begin to recognize various aspects of privacy as the basis of a tour. It, spying on your home, intruding on your seclusion, and taking your image and using it for an ad without your permission, just dignity denying, you know, appropriating your identity in a way that makes it seem false, you know, like uh, put you, putting you in a false light and disclosing very private facts. And But over time, instead of like being a capacious tort that can really be broad and, you know, gather other privacy invasions, Prosser, William Prosser, famous Berkeley professor, he is the author of the restatement second of torts. And he says, and he writes this article in 1960 saying privacy. Okay. That's a thing. Privacy. <laughs> you know, I've read all 120 cases he says in this article. And, and I've decided that these 120 cases are four torts. And he's really interesting because he almost, it almost fits like writs. It's very narrow. And he bases it not only on wrongs, course, like particular wrongs. But then he says the harms are, and almost like exclusively emotional, reputational, commercial. And I'm thinking, dude, you're getting this wrong. Like he's, he, and he, as my colleague Ted White says, he ossifies the four torts by, by articulating them and then putting them in the restatement of torts. They then become the only four torts. So, so I think in some sense, us law professors, have a lot to do with why the privacy torts don't evolve as they should. And so my new project is reading all these cases on the privacy torts from from even just before 1890. There's like one famous case about a woman giving birth and it's someone coming and watching that isn't a doctor and it's like a friend of the doctor and how she feels so horrified and mortified and ashamed when she finds out that this dude who's not a doctor has watched her give birth, right? And I think there is a way in which the privacy torts should grow. Like we should reclaim them rather than the four torts so that they can cover 21st century problems. But I know that's not necessarily, all those interstices aren't in my book, but there's a nub of it in my book that I would like to capture. And this is really helpful, right? Because because I, I do think it's it's helpful. And I just kind of want to repeat back a little bit of the last thing you said, because I, I think it does capture... I think the really powerful historical argument in your book, which is to say, so kind of in the late 19th century, we, and we might call it sort of the legal community, um, sort of discover privacy, right? And I'm sure there was stuff before then. I mean, in fact, of course, of course yes. Warren and Brandeis were arguing that this had all previously existed. Yeah. And there's this question of, well, they had, they kind of had to do that because of the culture. Were they making it up? It doesn't matter. But either way, so they kind of, they figure out this, this privacy thing. There's this moment of broad possibility then for whatever reason, it contracts. And maybe in the 60s and 70s and 80s, it's not ideal, but like, you know, these four torts are kind of enough. It sort of captures a lot of it. But the moment you get to the internet, it's it's just for reasons that, you know, literally we all understand because we live in this. 
it just blows those torts out of the water and it's just not enough. Yeah. And so sort of your role is to come in and kind of say, okay, we have to redo this work because we need just a much stronger set of tools. Some of them are kind of legal tools. Some of them are more conceptual tools. Is, is that a kind of fair way of just really stepping yeah. back and describing the project? Thank you. But yes, no, how you articulate it is exactly right. That is, we there is a past we can leverage that we can learn from and be enriched by, but we've got to either actualize it in part, but also conceptualize intimate privacy for its fullness, for all of its importance uh, as a moral right, you know, as a human right and a civil right, and then go from there. And and those tools aren't just privacy towards, right? Those tools have to be federal legislation recognizing a civil right to intimate privacy. And it's got to be, you know, industry norms that, that, that match them and be imaginative, right? And who's designing these services and tools. And of course, and all of us. So it's, it's very much like a legal agenda that's taking, borrowing the, you know, important kernels and building and building on the shoulders a lot of wonderful, you know, scholarship, but also ideas from the past, right? Um, like the conception of the civil rights that's from the Civil Rights Act of 1866 and the 1940s, you know, Department of Justice, how it understood civil rights as the right to work. Not necessarily that it was the right for labor rights, right? That was the Civil Rights Division of the Department of Justice, my dean. Risa Golubov has written a whole book about it. So that the civil rights story is a, is the story of a legal right and entitlement that each and every one of us enjoys and that has special protections against discrimination. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, Lawfare listeners, Ben Wittes here. I want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, the data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me. And it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information. Big culprit this time is something called My Life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have My Life anymore. And that is why I recommend 
delete me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there and these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a, a solution to this problem. And I wanna stress as I do every time that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back and then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com lawfare20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. Yeah, so I, I want to I get to that. But before I do, I do want to spend just a little bit of time talking about the, the sorts of, of intimate privacy violations that we're seeing. Now, oh, your, your book yes. is, is full of these details, and they're worth reading. They're often quite hard to read, frankly, yeah. um, because they're yeah. they're quite brutal, right? And as you point out, they go straight to this question of human dignity. I, I think I think at this point, yeah. most people have a decent sense of some of these problems. So I don't want to spend too much time in them. But there's one part of it that I do want to talk about, which is the question, especially since we're going to talk in a little bit about how the government can help solve this problem or, or ameliorate this problem. I want to talk for a second about the way the government can, can worsen the problem, not just indirectly, but directly. So you have this, this yeah. really interesting kind of small chapter on government disclosures. And you saw a lot of this in, in the Trump era and the way that Trump wielded information, the way that sometimes DOJ wielded information. You have a, you have a great article uh, that I will also plug on uh, specifically this issue of presidential privacy violations. Um, so I, I want to just take some time in part because I'm just interested in it to talk a little yeah, bit about um, you know what you see as the special nature and what is special and what is specially bad, I guess, about when the government violates your intimate yeah. privacy versus when you know, a trillion dollar tech company or someone down yeah. the street doesn't. Right. So the wiener, right. When an individual secretly tapes you in a hotel and tries to extort more nude images from you and you refuse and the person sends videos of you undressing and masturbating to um, your colleagues, let's say, and post them on adult sites, that shame and humiliation and difficulty of dealing with the fallout is is one thing, right? Because it's another person who you don't know or do know sometimes targeting you. And when it's a company that is sharing your, let's say, gay dating app information with an advertiser and in turn to a data broker that then a reporter gets a hold of and then publishes that you're a Monsignor and you're going to gay bars, that's another very difficult thing, right? That the company has made you vulnerable to those kinds of revelations of your sexual orientation and sexual activity, right? But when it's the government, with the imprimatur of the government and the trust and attention that is accorded the government, right? Everyone's paying attention to the President Trump when he's tweeting or the spokesperson from the Department of Justice. When the spokesperson from the Department of Justice calls in the press, we know White House press after hours to her office to say, hey, take a look at these 375 tax, private tax between Lisa Page and Pete Strzok who both were very distinguished 
FBI, one counter um, intelligence agent, the other FBI deputy to the general counsel, both working on very important uh, investigations, the Clinton email investigation, the other uh, crossfire hurricane, the investigation into Trump campaign officials' ties to Russia. DOJ spokesperson calls the press in, in a salacious way, right? At night, after hours, this is like after eight o'clock PM, building's closed. Says, come on in and look at these 375 texts. You can't take pictures of them. You can't quote the source, but you can know that these people had an affair. And you can know that they sent during their affair, they had some conversations about the presidential election, some that suggested that they didn't like Trump. And you can know that some of these, and you can look at all the texts and see that they're talking about their family, their kids, their health, and also work. You know, this is their their FBI phone. And they then go out those reporters, they post breathless stories about how these two very famous, very unknown, totally anonymous FBI officials essentially were having a torrid affair and that they were disparaging of Trump. And what do you think our president does? President Trump uses Twitter, right, which had millions upon millions upon millions of followers and people willing to them mob and did mob struck and page. Um, turning them into traitorous lovers, sick lovers. I'm just using Trump's language in his tweets, talking about how their affairs were in, you know, texts where they were disparaging him. And then every night on Fox News, Page and Strucker discussed as traitorous lovers who should share a cell, you know, according to Laura Ingraham. They became a meme of themselves. And Trump at a rally. He pretended he was Peter Strzok and Lisa Page. This is at a rally, a rally of thousands upon thousands of people. He did this three times. And he pretended to be Strzok and Page having sex. This is the president of the United States saying, oh, like pretending to orgasm and shouting Lisa Page's name. This is the president of the United States doing it on C-SPAN Live, right? So Twitter is filled with, and to this day, if you go to Fox News, you can see reporters talking about Page and Strzok's extramarital affair and their tech, private text messages. So when the government discloses private text that shouldn't be read by anybody, we're never meant to be read by anybody. If they were used, they were meant to be used sort of within the agency, let's say to, you know, if there were concerns you'll be within the agency and the inspector general could look at them. They weren't meant to be shown to reporters. That's not a routine use, right? And those disclosures led to the denial of both Strzok and Page their entire careers. That is, they were public servants to the core. Strzok, truly like, according to Mike Schmidt and others, the best counterintelligence agents we had in the country, period, the end. And Lisa Page was at, started her career at DOJ Honors and never left. Went to DOJ, then the FBI. She was a government lawyer. There's like, Alan, were you at the Department of Justice? Yes, you were. It's like a badge of honor. God bless. Do you know what I'm saying? Like being in the government and working as a government lawyer is the highest. I don't know. I always say to my students, like there's kind of nothing better than you feel in the integrity of the work, right? And they can no longer do that work. So it matters that it's a government official in the Department of Justice. It matters that it's the president invading your privacy, shouting to the rooftops that you've had an extramarital affair and your private texts are fodder for Fox News. It literally changed, I mean, privacy, intimate privacy violations change the direction of your life for, for mostly everybody who experiences them. But when it's the government with the imprimatur of the government, and the trust of the government, it can be torment that never ends. And that's been true for Page and Strzok. Yeah, and no, I think that, that's a kind of sobering description of what the government can do if it wants to wreck intimate privacy. Right, rather than protecting it, right, which is, you which know. Which is exactly, which is kind of the, what the back half of, <laughs> of your book is about, and which I kind of want to turn to to next. So, so if the kind of big idea of the first half of the book is that there's this thing called intimate privacy and it's really important for human flourishing and it's under attack, the back half of the book is, okay, well, we have to protect it. And, and the best way we can protect it is to think about it at both sort of concrete legal levels, but also higher kind of more conceptual levels as a civil right. So 
you know, what does it mean to think about something as a civil right? And, and in particular, there are kind of two sub questions that that I had while, while yeah. reading the, the book about that. And the first question I had is, if something is a civil right, rather than just an entitlement or something like that, or a property interest, that obviously puts restrictions on what other people can do that infringes on that right, maybe kind of puts a heightened scrutiny in some way. Yep. But does it also restrict the ability of the holder of that civil right to alienate that right in the market, for example? And, and I ask this because, you know, and at this point, this is just a, such a cliche, but we all know it's true. When we use the internet, you know, we're not getting a service. We are the service, which is to say we are the product that yeah. the pl- platforms then sell to the advertisers. And that may be a bad system for human flourishing, but that kind of is the system. So sort of one question I have is, you know, if my intimate privacy is a civil right, does it follow that actually I shouldn't, you know, I, the government should sometimes keep me from being able to alienate it in the way that the government keeps me from, I don't know, selling my organs. So that's kind of one question. And the other question I had mm-hmm. was, mm-hmm. you know, once it's a civil right, then you have to ask, well, what about the other civil rights? Because there are lots of civil rights at play here, and they can, at least in theory, come in conflict with one another. And in particular, the one that comes up, and you mentioned in a couple of parts of the book, is the First Amendment, right, which is itself a civil right. And so sort of, you know, you, you tend not to think, if I'm reading you correctly, that the conflict is actually as real as people make it out to be, and that there are actually ways of perfectly kind of harmonizing the things in most cases. But I'm kind of curious to hear your thoughts about that, too. Okay, perfect. Such good questions. Okay, so so let's first take, what does it mean when something is a civil right? And then can we alienate it? Or is that kind of a betrayal of the entire project? Which is, that's the first question. So let's do that one. So when we say something is a civil right, and this goes, so I'm, I'm relying on my colleague, Fred Schauer. When you say something is a right, it means that you can't give it away without a really good reason. So in this context, it's a, you know, it's an entitlement, a legal right that all of us enjoys, but relying on the sort of modern civil rights laws also has special protections for discrim- against discrimination, which is indeed the story of intimate privacy, which is a story of the, the vulnerable being the, not only the most vulnerable, but more often denied intimate privacy. And, and what that would mean that it's not good enough, let's say, just let's take individual privacy invaders. It's not good enough to say it was for fun. I'm showing off to my friends that I'm posting your nude photos. It's not good enough to say that. And it's not a good reason for companies to say it's more profitable, that it makes things easier, more efficient, or administrable. That's not good enough a reason. And it's not good enough a reason for the government to say just because I want it, right? And I uh, think of public benefits. I need to know about your previous sex partners, abortions, because I'm going to give you Medicaid for your pregnancy. You don't need that information for a healthy pregnancy right? You need a really good reason to so infringe upon your civil rights, intimate privacy. And it may indeed mean that, and as I talk about in the chapter about what it means to be a civil right, then you need a good reason. It shifts the default to yes, collect, sell, share, to no until you really need it. And it also means, and this is drawing on the lessons of the modern civil rights laws, that is, as we think of employers, schools, public tra- you know, transportation providers, that they're seen as the guardians or caretakers of education, of work, of, of the ability to, to, to get around freely for disabled individuals, that they're, they're obligors, right? They're the stewards of those important life opportunities. And that companies are the stewards, they're the data guardians of our intimate data, and that means they can't collect it unless they need it for the product or service. That is, they strictly need it for the product or service, right? They cannot collect it, period. Sorry, you can't collect it, right? It also means that they have duties of non-discrimination, of loyalty. So I'm pulling on Woody and Neil's work um, and care. And crucially, and this is, goes to your, that second part of your question, is that companies cannot sell it. To third parties, period, sorry, end stop, no, right? And what that means is since they can't sell my intimate data to advertisers, marketers, and to data brokers, it probably means that I have to buy the service myself. It turns us back into a subscription model, which damn straight should have been in the first place, right? Why? 
we don't, first of all, when we consent, supposedly it's all presumed, but when we consent to the obtaining of our data, you know, for our watch and our Fitbit and our, our menstrual app and our grinder and Tinder and, you know, all the ways that we're searching and browsing and reading and we're sharing our data, we don't understand one-tenth of the bargain and we can't know it. That is the way our data is used and traded and exploited is so unknown to us nor is it known to us or to companies at the time in which it's collected, right? And it's and it's often at the expense of the life opportunities, economic opportunities of women and the vulnerable. And so we just can't sell it. And that is true. So I'm saying some people can't alienate it, Alan. But you asked, is the individual person unable to sell it? And I, because I'm a pragmatist, not because I'm in love with the idea, I kind of am with Anita Allen on the unpopular privacy idea. There are some things you can't alienate, right? I do say in the book that if a data broker comes to me and wants my intimate data, I can sell it to them. Because unlike organs and babies, I feel like, you know, you can sell that, right? I don't love the idea. This is just my own personal, you know, as we all have struggles as we write, (laughs) like what I think I can stake out and defend conceptually, right, all the way, because my conception of privacy is so rooted in autonomy, right? Like there are three prongs that underlie the values, self-determination and identity, which is autonomy-based, human dignity, and intimacy, love. It's very hard for me to say you can't sell it. Does that make sense? It's sort of like I wouldn't be anti-sex work either. I'm not. No, it it does. And and it's it's a helpful thing for you to point out because the, the kind of thing that occurs to me as you're describing what will be the economic consequences of your approach, which I personally am very comfortable with, which is that we should be paying for these services, is of course that that's easy to say if you are middle class and you can pay for these services. But uh, you know, if you have to pay $10, $20, $30 a month, right. and I don't know what the number would be for each social media account that you have, right? then suddenly that takes – the internet and all these large parts of it and takes it out of the you know out of the 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 purchasing power of the poor uh, and and so you ha- it seems it seems like there is this there is this conflict one might even say it's a wicked problem right uh, that on the one <laughs> hand yeah that on the well, the one hand right you're absolutely right it's, it's precisely those who are most marginalized that have their intimate privacy most violated but in a sense it's also at least when it comes to the economic element you know, it's the intimate privacy violations that enable this "quote unquote" free internet. Now, maybe the answer is it's just not worth it, right? Like, right. you know, we we don't we have we put limitations right. on all sorts of things that you know right. on the margin make things more expensive. Um, but I, I did want to flag that and just sort of see what if you had right. thoughts on that. No, no, and I say in the book that you know nonprofits could step in. You know, you think about queer youth, right? That is opportunities for, and I would think the Cyber Civil Rights Initiative, you know, our nonprofit. You know, there are ways in which nonprofits can come together to provide services, like think about Planned Parenthood in a pre-Dobbs era, providing period tracking app services if people couldn't afford it, right? That there, I, I imagine, and I think this is true, if we have a civil rights intimate privacy, which means that we have to start paying for lots of things because our data isn't the payment, that there will be a vacuum that's filled by nonprofits and that you know, it's interestingly, the account of social media and its exploitation and leading us to extremes and all those polarization and addiction problems, like maybe there would also be less of that. I feel like Chris Gilliard has done, he's hypervisible on Twitter, has written like really beautifully about luxury surveillance and how, you know, we like sort of bring really bad stuff into our homes that is rich people are being idiots. And so maybe it's not all bad, right, Alan? But I do, I do take your point and think it's worth it that the costs of intimate privacy and the long tail costs for the vulnerable are definitely not worth it, right? Like if they miss a little social media, it's better that their life insurance premiums don't go sky high and they're not deny jobs. So that makes sense, Alan? Like it, it, it certainly does. Yeah. So, and then you ask the question about trade offs, right? And so. Yes, rights. I mean, this is this is proportionality analysis in some sense, right? That sometimes even intimate privacy will be in conflict with intimate privacy, 
right? And we have to fairly assess people's competing privacy interests, let alone intimate privacy and free speech, right? And we just have to look in a really clear-eyed way at, at the interests at stake, right? And sometimes we have to choose one right is more important than the other right. We do it all the time. And, you know, sometimes the, I just want to take um, the 20th century response to domestic violence was that family privacy mattered more and that we don't go in the home. But in truth, we weren't even thinking about the only privacy we thought about in that moment was the man's ability to beat his wife in his home without anyone watching. And that the woman's privacy, and she had none in the home, right? She was beaten and raped. Her body was not her own. Like this is in cases of domestic abuse. She had no intimate privacy. So if we actually weighed the privacy interest in that moment when police come to the door, likely the beaten woman's privacy and and sexual integrity would have been more important than the ability of the man to hide his crimes. Does that make sense? Like we just didn't see women's privacy as, as if it wasn't there. So I've had a little way of differences in the way that I describe my work and Anita Allen's description of that, which is that privacy can sometimes be for bad and good. And I disagree. I actually think privacy is a deeply normative. She believes it is too, but for me, it's deeply normative in the sense it's only when it's autonomy enhancing, dignity securing, intimacy enabling, is it privacy, intimate privacy. So, you know, we, we, we have privacy as a civil right. Um, and there are lots of ways, again, that can be instantiated. You know, you talk about reforms to Section 230, which is something that, you know, I, I, I don't think we need to necessarily get into on this podcast just because everyone's talked about it so much. But you have great writing about that. You talk about, um, you know, potentially you know, various legal regimes that would impose all sorts of, of duties on companies, treating them as data guardians. That's the kind of label you use. But I actually want to talk kind of less about the the legal changes, or they're very, very important. I want to actually focus on a point you make near the end of the book, which I think is super important, and I appreciate that you spent time on it, which is the norms that exist in Silicon Valley. And, and the question I want to ask you is, do you think that Silicon Valley has learned its lesson? And, and I, I have to say that I'm quite skeptical. I mean, I, I was on Same. college. <laughs> I was in college uh, when Facebook came out. Yeah. I think I'm like user yeah. 304 or something of yes. Facebook just because of the timing. Wow. Um, yes. And, you know, obviously Facebook didn't care about privacy. It didn't care about privacy. It was a pig book. It no, was no, like I, rating women, right? Uh, yeah. Uh, okay. Yes. Uh, yes. Yes. The um, originally. Right? Yeah. The yeah, originally. Yeah. Not you. Never you. Never user 304. Uh, obviously. Never user 304. Now, you know, 15 years later, we have a, you know, more adult and I think legitimately chastened somewhat Mark Zuckerberg, but no who's like building the metaverse. But is Jeez. there any reason to think, and I mean, I, I, my sense is, you know, you're optimistic that like the metaverse will be better for privacy than, I mean, oh at least they're God. trying. I mean, can we at least say that? Or no. you just, you just don't believe it. Don't buy it, man. Don't buy it. I mean, I see having worked with staff, you know, their staff, their safety teams, uh, Facebook, Twitter, Spotify, Bumble, TikTok, you know, like having worked Microsoft with these companies for a really long time. They're, they're very I earnest. Guess. I mean, I've talked to these people too. Like they're, they're, they're nice exactly. people. Exactly. No, exactly. The safety folks not only are really smart, they really care. But guess what? When you go to dinner at Mark Zuckerberg's house, he doesn't give no shit. <laughs> it's the C-suite. It's like, even if Monica Bickert is in the C-suite, which she is, she's head of trust, you know, head of trust and safety policy. She's amazing. But in truth, the business demands went out, period, the end. I don't care what my friends are arguing to them, right? Because think about Facebook Live, right? Before Facebook Live is rolled out, first of all, Zuckerberg is totally enamored of this. He's like, oh, it'll be so visceral. We can experience people in the moment. He's like as bro-ish about what it's going to be as possible, right? And of course, what then happens is Christchurch massacre. What then happens are live rapes in Sweden and Chicago. So, and then of course, because it's a business proposition, instead of saying, you know what, we're going to take a hold, like a pause on Facebook live and see what we can do with pre-monitoring, you know, like just, just, just even invite a conversation about some delays, nothing. He says, no, no, we're going to hire 3000 content moderators who likely live in the Philippines and likely are working under terrible conditions for little pay, like a Sarah Roberts would say. So I don't buy it. You know, unless law stops these people, 
I think that I'm not trusting, you know, Silicon Valley to fix it. I would like us to bring moral suasion to the story, right? Like Mutali Nakandi's AI for the People's and her tremendous argument and and lobbying of Silicon Valley to hire black engineers and more women, because if you build it, it's really hard to tack on safety and harm reduction later. And if the people building it know the harm, they're going to avoid it, right? So I, it's not that I'm giving up on Silicon Valley, but your cynicism is so shared by me. You know, like I'm with you. And also I understand in some ways it's like Ben Wittes would say this to me. It's like rational for these companies to allow abuse because it's like clicks and shares and shareholders, you know, value. So we got to fix the law. You know, that's what like sort of as Ben and I talked about our section 230 work together. Let me finish our conversation because I always like to end on a, on a note of optimism or, or at least not diving straight down into super pessimism. If there was, because, you know, you, you said these companies will not change their practices unless the law requires them to. And so I am curious if you could, you know, we'll, we'll play the law school game. If you were, you know, czar of the, of the universe and you could make sort of one legal change or I don't know, you're giving Joe Biden advice or I don't know, you're giving Ron DeSantis advice. Maybe he cares about privacy too. Who knows? There's a certain, uh, I think, uh, uh, bipartisan nature to a lot of the, the points that you're making. I don't see why it has to necessarily be just on one side of the aisle. And they say, okay, you get, you get one law, like one major reform. What do you, what right. could have, what would be on the top of your, your punch list? So my federal, I mean, I don't want to beat a dead horse, but my federal civil right to intimate privacy also includes changes to 230. It's also includes comprehensive protection against intimate privacy violations. It also includes data guardianship and limits on collection, use, studies of loyalty, non-discrimination, and no sale. So in a way, I have that agenda for them. It's whether they adopt it as a different story, right? What what and, and what would you say then are the I mean it's always obviously we have a sclerotic political system and it's hard to get anything done, but do do you think, you know, I mean maybe going back to our my first question about what you know, comparing two thousand and eight to twenty twenty two, right? Yeah. You know, you have this yeah. book, it's been wonderfully reviewed. It's a it's a it, it, it's in part because it's a great book, and I think also because it, it has hit at the kind of right moment. I mean, do you think we as a society are ready to make these changes? Or do you think the situation has to somehow get even worse before we realize this is bad? This is sort of shredding our ability to flourish as human beings, and we need to, you know, deal with this problem in a comprehensive way, like we dealt with, you know, environmental degradation in the '70s and right. dangerous cars yeah. and the, you know, whatever the case may be. You know, post Dobbs, I think we are having some of a moment, right? So, working with Senator Warren on the protection of reproductive health and location data, same with Representative Jacobs on her My Data, My Body Act. That is, I think post-Dobbs, we're having a holy cow reckoning that the Fourth Amendment is for sale. So bless Wyden's Fourth Amendment is not for sale proposal. I think we're having a reckoning about the surveillance of intimate life. And at the same time, we're facing headwinds from states that want to criminalize you know, my children's reproductive autonomy, right? I have two 20 girls in my 20s. Well, Danielle, I think we'll have to end it there. Um, but thank you so much. It's a really wonderful book. And I encourage folks who both want to learn about this issue and also folks who, who think they know about this issue to read it because there's a lot new there. And it's just a wonderful guide for the future. So always good to talk to you. Wonderful to talk to you. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare Podcasts by becoming a Lawfare material supporter at patreon.com slash lawfare. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. And look out for our other podcasts, including Rational Security, Chatter, Allies, and The Aftermath, our latest Lawfare Presents podcast series on the government's response to January 6th. And check out our written work at lawfareblog.com. The podcast is edited by Jen Petya Howell, and your audio engineer this episode was Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. 
it'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.